Hello, and welcome to the 28th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. Our guest on this 28th episode is Daniel A. Johnston Esquire, an attorney specializing in criminal defense, personal injury, and business and consumer litigation. Dan's motto is, call me when you're arrested, injured, or ripped off. Dan was a guest on our show for the 4th and 14th episodes and is back by popular demand. If you miss those shows, be sure to go back to check them out. Dan is a former prosecutor in the Nassau County District Attorney's Office who has also handled civil litigation defense matters in large New York City firms. Dan's practice focuses on helping individuals and small businesses when it matters most, mostly criminal defense and plaintiff's civil litigation. Please check out the show notes for a full description of Dan Johnston's credentials and contact information. Please keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. So we have a number of timely and important topics to discuss today. Our first topic is the elimination of cash bail for defendants facing misdemeanor and nonviolent felony charges in every county of New York State as of January 1st, 2020 the ability to make bail will no longer be the determining factor for pretrial detention for defendants who have not yet been found guilty of any crime. How does this affect the DA's offices and courts in Nassau and Suffolk counties? This part of the legislation that's going to be making sweeping changes come January 1st uh, doesn't have as many implications for the court and the DA's office in that It doesn't affect their ability to prosecute the case or to preside over a case whether or not the defendant is in or out. It really only brings New York into line with, I believe it's 46 other states that have taken measures to open up discovery and review how they handle bail. One of the issues that comes up is the fact that if you have person A who has some means versus person B, they're charged with the same crime, even if you have exactly the same bail set, it's essentially putting person A into jail before they've been convicted of anything for the length of however long the proceedings take. Uh, There's an infamous case that really spurred the government to start making these efforts where you, you had a young man who sat in Rikers for over three years because he couldn't afford $3,000 bail. Situations like that show that you know, justice is not one size fits all. This is one of the only ways you can give everyone a level playing field to defend their cases. I mean, it's all the more important when you have someone who's charged with a crime. If they're in jail, they haven't retained an attorney yet. How do you expect them to prepare a defense while they're sitting in a cell? This is overdue. Uh, You brought up some very interesting issues. One is that it's unequal in terms of if you have money, you can afford bail, you get out of jail. If you're poor, you're discriminated against because you do not have the money to raise for bail. Is that correct? Yes. It's it's a policy where on its face it appears, okay, well, these are what the charges are. We're going to set the same bail for these two separate defendants. But it's in practice not how things go. Uh, If you're able to afford bail, you get out, you can go start looking for an attorney, you can start investigating what defenses you have. If you can't afford it, then you're out of luck and you have to sit in a cell until your next court date and hope that, you know, someone on the outside can do these things for you. 
Plus, plus, if you're sitting in a jail cell, you're not working. You may lose your job. You're not paying rent, so you may lose your apartment. You're not seeing your family, your children, your spouse. You're not able to live a normal life. Absolutely. And the real losers in this legislation aren't the DA. They aren't the judges. And it's not the criminal defense system itself. The people who are really standing to lose as a result of this legislation are for-profit bail companies and bondsmen. Uh, who are going to see their entire business model upended. Uh, And also, you're going to see a reduction in the size of the workforce for corrections. That's one of the largest expenses we have in the state. And the reality of it is, uh, I believe it's 30% at last check, of prisoners who are in local jails are there because they're pending charges. So if you have a 30% reduction of the people who are in jail, it's going to have a massive effect. One estimate put it at at least 40% of a reduction overall in the state's pretrial jail population. It is a very big deal, and I do believe it is a great stride towards making this, uh, the system more equal. I mean, a lot of these cases, it, it's so idiosyncratic how it's handled. You, you, it depends what bail you're going to get depends on who the DA happens to be that day, who the judge happens to be that day. Uh, so much of it is just, there, there's no rhyme or reason to a lot of it, and, and this just takes it all out of the equation. So there's no more subjectivity. It's an objective standard. And I also want to uh, confirm with you, we're talking about people who have not been convicted of any crime, right? Absolutely. They've just been accused. Those are the only ones affected by this legislation. People who have been convicted of a crime has no effect on them whatsoever. So even though they're presumed innocent until proven guilty, they're basically being held against, they're being incarcerated and not able to live a normal life. Absolutely, and you know it is a very big problem in the way it was handled previously because even though bail is really only meant to have two effects, it's to ensure that the defendant returns to court and it's to preserve safety in the community. But the reality is if you ever go to an arraignment and you see the different bail amounts that are handed out, it's almost like it's a preliminary punishment based on one side of the facts. Because at the arraignment, the only person who has any paperwork in front of them or any investigation done is the government. So when a defense attorney stands up, they haven't been able to investigate. They really just have to counter what the district attorney is saying. And then based on how egregious the judge perceives the crime to be, that's what is determining the bail amount. So that's that's not meeting the goals of what bail was supposed to be in the first place. And when, when the system's not working, you got to go back and fix it. And this appears to be at least the first attempt to do so in a very long time since the 70s, I believe. Okay. And does this law affect those who are currently incarcerated? And will they be released as of January 1st? I can't guarantee they'll be released as of January 1st, but there is a provision in the bill that it is not presumed that they will be released subject to bail review as it was in California and New Jersey when they implemented similar laws. Uh, This includes a mandate. So if you're currently sitting in jail for something that no longer requires bail, you're going to get out. And since we're talking about reducing the cost to the the county or the state to incarcerate people, on the the flip side, there will be an increase uh, in funds needed for police overtime, as well as computer equipment and software to manage all of this. Uh, Where will that money come from? It's above my pay grade. Um, I mean, there will be savings in terms of a reduced 
need for workforce in the correction setting, but that's not going to take effect overnight. You're talking about a highly unionized workforce who, who have some level of job security. And if anything, it's going to be forward looking in terms of we don't need to hire this many officers next year. It's not going to be, okay, we've got a 30% reduced population, therefore we're reducing our workforce by 30%. doesn't happen that way, especially not in government. Okay, so are you referring to, when you talk to a unionized workforce, both police officers as well as corrections officers? I'm primarily referencing corrections officers because their workload is going to be reduced as a result of this bill. This is a unionized workforce. It's not a private uh, entity where it's all about the bottom line. These are people who have pensions, who have guarantees, who have contracts, CBAs, uh, collective bargaining agreements, all of that. It's not a simple matter of saying, okay, these are our reduced needs for the year, so we're going to let go of this many people. It, it's just not the way it works under this setting. And what about the argument by those who are against this new law, namely that it makes our neighborhoods unsafe when we do not lock up defendants? When you lock someone up, it is supposed to be because they have been proven guilty of a crime. The only purpose for bail in the first place was to ensure a defendant returns to court. And the only additional people you're going to see getting out are those who wouldn't have been able to afford some nominal amount of bail in the first place. The argument that it's going to make our neighborhoods worse, most of these concerns are being voiced in neighborhoods where it's never going to have an effect whatsoever anyway. The people who are raising concerns that it's going to make our communities more dangerous are usually coming from communities where the crime rate is already very low, and those are the people who can generally afford bail anyway. Is, I, it, is this just fear-mongering? Absolutely. The reality is if you have someone, let's say, for instance, the uh, unfortunate case that we were talking about earlier uh, with the young man who was incarcerated in Rikers on $3,000 bail, the reality is he's a bit of an anomaly at that bail amount. Most people who are in jail subject to $3,000 bail, they can turn around and get a bond posted by a bail bondsman and the family puts up maybe three, $400 in some collateral and then he's out. The effect is going to be next to unnoticeable. The effect of, of the, the money. Effect of, the effect of the, uh, it's going to make our community safer because these people are in jail. But the reality is they're only being held while they're awaiting trial. They haven't been proven guilty of anything yet. And the charges are not violent anyway. Mainly probably drug possession? Yes. Okay. Um, our next topic involves the mandatory 15-day, 1-5, 15-day discovery rule, whereby prosecutors only have 15 days from arrest to turn over evidence against the defendant, including police reports, photographs, recordings, and witness information to the defense. That's a lot less time than they have right now, the prosecutors. So how are prosecutors going to remain in compliance with this law? I wish them luck. It's not going to be easy. 15 days is a very short window. There is a provision that under certain circumstances, which could most likely be alleged in just about every case, they can apply for a 30-day stay. So the reality is it's not likely going to end up being a hard 15-day deadline. They're most likely going to have about 45 days to get most information out. Do they have a burden of proof that they have made a good faith effort to try to comply with the law? Yes, but the reality of how that plays out is if I'm the DA, I go into court and say, well, the detective who made the arrest has been out on vacation for the last week. Uh, the sergeant that I tried to speak with, he, he had a family issue and he wasn't there on Friday. So I've made about three or four calls and I haven't been able to get the necessary documentation. I'd request 30 days as, as allowed by statute. And the judge will give it. 
you think so? Okay. So in a letter to the editor of Newsday one month ago, a retired police officer uh, who was formerly in the Queens County Homicide Squad wrote that providing witness information to the defense puts the safety of the witnesses to crimes in danger. Do you agree? And do you think this law will have a chilling effect on witnesses who may now choose not to come forward out of fear for their own safety? It is a concern, and there's a lot to unpack there. The most important thing, I would think, in the new legislation in regards to concerns over witness safety is there is a provision that the DA, or either side really, can apply for a protective order uh, in relation to just about any piece of evidence. So if what we're talking about is a violent crime or, or some egregious crime, and there's a legitimate concern about witness safety, there is a provision that allows the DA to file for a protective order. And it also provides that the court has to hear arguments about the protective order within three days of being put on notice. Hold on, just to, to clarify, the order would prevent the disclosure of the name and contact information for the witness? That can be requested, yes. Okay. So they can say, okay, this is a violent crime, there's legitimate concerns that uh, the witness might be in danger if their information is released. Um, for that reason, we, we are looking to uh, redact, perhaps, uh, either name, address, phone number, whatever information in the, in the sake of you know, witness safety. So if you do not give to the defense the contact or name uh, of the witness, does that then prevent the right of confrontation? Does that prevent the defendant from adequately mounting a defense in his or her own uh, name? No, not necessarily, and I don't think there's a constitutional concern because the right to confront your witnesses really happens at trial, not during pretrial discovery. There's no constitutional basis to demand that a witness's name be released prior to trial, which was kind of the bedrock of how the laws were before. Prior to this legislation, which for the record, I, I, I do think is actually overbroad and overburdensome, uh, which is strange coming from me. But something did have to happen. The way it works in practice now and in the past is that the district attorney wasn't obligated to turn over just about anything at all unless there was, number one, a written demand from the defense. And even then, the prosecutor had until the eve of trial to turn over everything. It's something we uh, lovingly call a Rosario packet. So just prior to someone testifying at a hearing or a trial, you would get a thick packet of papers dumped on your desk with many times less than a few hours to review and prepare. That's obviously swinging way too far in favor of the prosecution. This legislation is an attempt to address that. I do believe they've swung the pendulum too far the other way, and there will be some tweaking and corrections in the future, I'm sure, but this is certainly a massive overhaul of how discovery is conducted in criminal cases. And do you see that this new law is going to change the playing field and the dynamics between the DA's office and criminal defense attorneys? And you've been on both sides. Do you think it makes your job as a criminal defense attorney a little easier? In some ways, yes. Um, in most ways, yes. There are a few quirks to the law that will be more burdensome on me, but it's nothing compared. Such as? Uh, there's reciprocal discovery that's a little more broad-based than it was previously. Uh, now the defense also is going to be required within 30 days of, I'll break it down this way, the, the timeline will be if there's no extension of time, the DA has 15 days to turn over what they have. 
they then need to file a notice of compliance. Once the notice of compliance is filed, then I only have 30 days to turn over just about everything I have. Wait, why, why does a defense attorney have to turn over any documents if it's the burden of the prosecutor to prove the guilt of the defendant? I believe it would just go back to trying to level the playing field. At the end of the day, the criminal justice process is not supposed to be a game. It's supposed to be a means of getting to the truth of the matter and determining whether someone is innocent or guilty of a crime. Um, so this is an attempt to lay it level the playing field. Uh, obviously, anything that's protected by attorney-client privilege or, or a ghost strategy or anything like that is still protected. The goal is just to avoid sandbagging. Ninety percent, if not higher, of criminal cases are resolved by plea. It's not by trial. And in order to have effective plea negotiations, both sides need to know what they're talking about and to allow either side to hold you know, a trump card in their back pocket and not negotiating good faith doesn't... Which, which they spring on the other side on the eve of trial. Yes. That is not furthering the goal of the process. I'm not overly critical of requiring that defense attorneys provide a certain level of information to the DA's office. I actually think it'll be helpful in the resulting plea negotiations. I have a question. So do you have an obligation to turn over incriminating information as well or just exculpatory? In practice would not be turning over incriminating evidence against my client because I only really have to turn over what I'm intending to use at trial, which I'm never going to be putting into trial something that hurts my client unless there's some 3D chess game that I'm playing. The vast majority of times, I'm never putting in something incriminating forward to trial. Therefore, I'm under no obligation to turn it over to the people. So really, it's just anything that I have that I'm intending to introduce at trial. The goal is to make it so that trial is not the first time that either side is seeing what's going to be entered into evidence. And in October 2019, Nassau Supervising Judge Teresa Corrigan granted a new trial to a defendant who had been found guilty after it was discovered both prior to and during trial, prosecutors failed to disclose to the defense attorney that the police officer witness had faced prior departmental discipline years earlier for lying. Prosecutors claimed it was an inadvertent error. Do you think it's sufficient in this case, Dan, to throw out the conviction and retry the defendant, or should the whole case have been thrown out? I think it depends on what the outcome is of the new trial. If their strongest witness was someone who has a history of lying and that was never disclosed, regardless of if it's inadvertent, then there should be no case. Um, if it just happens to be an officer who wasn't central to the case and he was just providing illumination on some other topic or he was uh, uh, an additional witness to many others, then then it would be sufficient. Uh, if he's the arresting officer, if he's the officer who did the investigation and this is who their central witness is, the case should just be tossed. And, and if not, I mean, he should be suing the county. Does this, doesn't this lead to the public feeling a lack of confidence in our police officers, feeling that the system, whether the police system or the court system is failing them because we really can't trust the court system to find the truth, to do the right thing. I don't know if it's the court system specifically or the prosecution and the police department. Unfortunately, there's been so many barriers erected to getting into the past of officers who happen to be testifying. In the, there's officers testifying in every trial, just about every trial. And 
there's a complete roadblock in place to getting into the history of that officer unless it's been disclosed. That's our only method of learning if an officer has a history of lying, for instance, like in this case. Can you ask the prosecutor directly for a for a an employee file for the police officer? Absolutely not. And if you are going to go that route, it involves an entire court process. Civil Rights Law 50A, you're going to have to file for a motion to compel the production of his employment file, which includes not only just things that adversely affected him, but if there was an internal investigation uh, that was done into that officer, you're never going to know about it unless you are successful in pursuing it by that method. It's the only way available. Is and that is that a viable method for no, obtaining a report? No. No, because 90% of the time, you're not going to have any reason to suspect that there even was this history. I don't have access to the same documents that the police or the DA's office does. Is there a, data, a database among criminal defense attorneys uh, who work on various case, uh, various trials? I know this police officer, I know that police officer, and you can check that database? Oddly enough, I wish I knew the site off the top of my head, but there's a major newspaper that's undertaken an effort to start making a database of known officers who have had uh, issues with either telling the truth or a number of false arrests. And if I can think of it, I'll send it to you. Okay, and then we'll um, put there, it up on the site. There is also, and this is just something that's out there, it's not necessarily publicized or anything like that, but every county has what's known as their Brady List, which it means if there's an officer who's involved in a case, a flag goes up on the file immediately and whoever's handling the case has to speak with a supervisor and figure out what they're going to do. You're talking about from the prosecutorial side? Yes. Not from the defense side? Not from the defense side. And the defense is not informed of their Brady list? Correct. Uh, it's all guesswork. And like I said, with the Civil Rights Law 50A, in order to get those records, you have to make a good faith argument as to why you believe those records exist. And if I'm just in the dark, not knowing who this officer is from a hole in the wall, I can't make that argument, and I'm never going to be successful in getting his file revealed to me, which means my only safeguard is the DA's office doing their job and disclosing that this officer has had an issue with this in the past. And that's the safeguard that failed in this case, and absolutely at minimum, that man deserves a new trial. Okay. And I would just like to say, I know, Dan, you're a former prosecutor. You have a great deal of respect for the police, as do I. We're talking about a few of the bad apples sure. who who actually cast aspersions on the other law-abiding and excellent law officials and police officers whom we have in our community, and we're fortunate to have them. So I don't want in any way to leave any of our listeners with the feeling that uh, we do not support the police. We do. It's just, it's it's disconcerting as an attorney to me that we are not entitled, we as, as citizens are not entitled to know uh, about the witnesses who come before us unless the prosecutor decides to reveal that information. Absolutely. And I would just add that absolutely a fan of the Nassau County PD and the work they do. And the vast majority of them are just trying to do the right thing. And the reality is... It's a hard is, job. It's a very hard job. And the reality is, these officers who do the wrong thing, it's it's all the worse. Because not only are they doing something that is selfish and immediately hurts people, but the reality is when these things come to light, it discredits the force as a whole. Uh, so it's, it's really to be doubly condemned. And also as it relates to leveling the playing field, one of the most critical 
times for a defense attorney when you have a client who's facing a felony is when they've been arraigned but they have not yet faced the grand jury and received an indictment. That is usually the time period where there's some offer made from the DA's office that would allow them to take a plea and it's normally to a lower charge than what they'd be indicted for. And there is a history of once the indictment comes down that plea offer is revoked and it either starts from scratch where you're now facing a much heavier stick uh, and the carrot is much smaller. This new discovery law also provides that if there is a plea made or a plea offered during the pre-indictment phase of a felony case, the prosecutors are required to turn over discoverable materials at least three days prior to the expiration of the offer. That is probably from the practice standpoint of a criminal defense attorney, one of the biggest parts of this bill. Because and why is that? Up a, if, under the old system, I would be engaging in this plea negotiation absolutely blind. I'm not entitled to anything at that point in time. This completely puts that on its head. Now, in order for us to even entertain entering into a plea, the DA is going to have to provide us with discoverable information, which means I can actually weigh the strength of the case against my client versus navigating in the dark. And the reality, the old adage is true. There's a saying that a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich because in a grand jury, your defense is typically not there unless the defendant is testifying himself. You have absolutely no idea what's going on in that room, and the prosecutor is able to put on their case without any roadblocks or pushback. So having the ability to actually review the evidence before entering into a plea agreement at that critical junction is, again, one of the biggest parts of this bill, and it's it's really a huge step forward in terms of fairness in the system. I just want to ask you, it sounds like all of the protections here and the benefits are to the criminal defendants. Are there any benefits to the DA's office or to the police? Not really. Uh, it is a very one-sided bill. Like I said, the pendulum is completely swinging the other way under this bill, and it really does put a tremendous burden on the people to uh, comply with this law. It's, it's generally understood that the police are under the discretion or control of the prosecutor, but it's really only been an issue of case law in the past, which is why you have all these names for hearings and, and all that. This is one of the first times that it's been codified that the police and what they possess is deemed in the possession of the prosecution. So what happens a lot of times now in practice is we'll demand something in writing, we'll get maybe three-fourths of the police paperwork, and then the day before trial, we get the last fourth. We haven't really had time to digest it, but they haven't really broken any law or failed to comply. That's just what the discovery rules are right now. They're very loose towards timing of the prosecutor dis disclosing things. This is, you need to give us everything, and you need to give it to us fast. And the prosecutor now has accountability. The prosecutor cannot disclaim anymore, it's not my file, it's the police file, correct? Absolutely. And this shows me even more so why any defendant facing any criminal uh, charge, whether misdemeanor or felony, really needs the benefit, it really deserves the benefit of an experienced criminal defense attorney rather than going in whether himself or herself or getting someone who is new and experienced because the stakes are so high and now with this new law, the benefits are so strong for the defendant, so it's a shame for the defendant not to have the best legal defense that he or she can have. Absolutely. Uh, this bill has greatly increased 
a defendant's rights during the process, but if someone is not knowledgeable about those rights or knows when to exercise them, they just fall by the wayside. That's it for our 28th episode. Thank you, Daniel Johnston, for coming back on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, we greatly appreciate your rating us with a review that might start. I just heard on the LI Law podcast that the Conviction Integrity Bureau of the Suffolk County DA's office has received federal grants totaling $850,000 to investigate claims of innocence by convicted defendants and to rectify wrongful convictions in the wake of the Keith Bush exoneration for a crime he did not commit and for which he was wrongfully imprisoned in Suffolk County for 33 years. The CIB is currently reviewing 100 prior convictions, some dating back 20 years, in which the defendant consistently asserted innocence. It's sad to say that a good result here will be the exoneration of innocent people wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit and for which they lost their freedom for many years. We will continue to follow this development. The LI Law Podcast is your source for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.